0: Thinking about it from a um, post-pandemic point of view we'll be putting out criteria maybe Monday now it didn't fit with it. we're still going around on a little bit on content but mostly on how to get it in a digestible form of what it, what do you need what action capabilities do you need to start to roll back restrictions on uh, normal and business activity um, and They're different than what everybody else talks about. Yeah. Uh, And we've got to get them out. Can we get them out to people? But in that spirit is thinking about what's the post-pandemic world going to look like and how do organizations have a window to reconfigure, just like hospitals did and and will continue. Uh, They won't just go back to the way things used to be. Um, And so business organizations, in some sense, have a, 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 a permission slip. From all of their stakeholders to do things differently, to reconfigure how they do things and what they value and how they set up. But this is a window of opportunity to miss as the pandemic slows down. Is uh, is um, uh, is waste enormous opportunity. Uh, and if you fall into, the, I just have to get back to the way I was and reimpose the normal old order that I was comfortable with. Um, you're you're not only going to be a weaker organization afterwards, you're, but you will miss this tremendous opportunity to rethink and be more more vibrant in, the, in what the world's going to look like after this.
1: Hey everybody, Todd Conklin, pre-accident investigation. How are you? This fine day. I hope you're good. So uh, today's podcast is really special. I'm very excited about it. It's um, it's quite a nice little uh, get for the podcast. Professor David Woods from The Ohio State University, Professor of Resilience Engineering. He's got bazillions of accolades, but the one I put on him is he's a good friend of mine, and he has done for the past 40 years more for our world than uh, pretty much anybody else I can think of, actually. He's given legs around the notion of resilience in a way that's been very meaningful. He's also given it the empirical backbone, the the academic strategies to make the discussion much less um, fluffy and much more operational, much more practical. But mostly what he's done is really coined the notion of graceful extensibility, this idea that systems are constantly in a position... We're due to variability, variance, VUCA, whatever we want to call it now. We're in the midst of one now, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Those systems have the ability to adaptively expand, extend, graceful extensibility. And that's, in fact, exactly, precisely what this podcast is about. And it's a good one. It's a really good one, actually. I think you're going to like it immensely. Listen carefully, because... When David and I sat down to do this podcast, um, I asked him to be a part of it, which he graciously accepted, which is nice. I told him where we were on this journey and who we are. And he's been on, I think this is his fourth time on, he's been on a a, a bunch, but today I think is the most meaningful conversation that we could have. You don't really need to, you kind of just get David started and he goes, so it's not really a conversation conversation. But he's going to talk about all the things he's, he's thinking about right now in the midst of a major, major, major uncertainty event, uh, a pandemic. And this podcast gives more, really, more more suggestions of a path forward, more leadership strategy ideas than probably anything else I've been exposed to. And And there's tons of supplemental information, in fact- in the podcast notes, I'll put some web addresses uh, so that if you want to pursue this a little farther and figure out and follow and talk about and look at the, the lists and the writings that David's created, they're available for you and we'll make them open and ready for you. But I think I should probably shut up and get into the podcast because it's uh, it's a little longer than normal, but you tell me what you would have cut. Go ahead and give me your editorial comments post listening to this, but listen to it. I do think this is one you're you'll probably want to pass around. And that's fine. Do so. Pass it around. Certainly um when he talks about the opportunity well you heard the introduction. That we have an opportunity for change. Our stakeholders are willing to accept no longer doing business as usual. And that's a big part of this discussion. So let's sit back and, and relax and listen carefully. This is uh Professor David Woods and uh and well, I guess I'd be the other person, and me. So I'm the other person, uh, and we're having a discussion around resilience and um, pandemics. Here it is on the PreAccent Podcast.
0: So you know, if we look at it from a, um, a wide-ranging set of organizations, we have a disruptive event. And in some ways, what we're seeing here is things that happen in many kinds of disasters uh, that have large scope or scale to them. And so as we increase the, uh, uh, as we increase the um, uh, size of hurricanes and the energy in hurricanes, uh, that uh, impacts a larger area. And so what do we find? We find that the backup plans that we have, the kinds of contingencies, the normal kinds of checks that we put in in order to keep going relative to disturbances that we regularly experience turn out to break down pretty quickly. Um, uh, We can run through this in terms of uh, digital infrastructure examples. Uh, We can run through it in in other kinds of examples. What happens is we see that things that we thought would be there as backups are also degraded or eliminated by the disrupting event. Or we see that those resources quickly become oversubscribed. So this is clearly one of the examples of what's going on with COVID-19 as a series of rolling outbreaks across the world. Um, Things that we count on turn out not to be there. Now, many of these have degraded over time if we focus on uh, what's going on from a biomedical point of view. Uh, As one uh, infectious disease expert said a few days ago, that a biomedical powerhouse like the U.S. should so thoroughly fail to create a simple diagnostic test was quite literally unimaginable. Not aware of any simulations that we would have run where a failure of testing would have been considered. Um, So here we have a surprise event that undermines our ability to deliver a service uh, or engage in a critical activity. And that kind of surprise is normal. I mean, it's what I've looked at for 40 years since the Three Mile Island nuclear accident, which was a surprise to the nuclear industry, which had prepared uh, for large failures. Uh, The idea that a series of small failures would combine with some misjudgments and actions by operators who had never heard or been trained about any of these circumstances that could arise and this would evolve into the equivalent of a major loss of coolant accident, uh, was a complete shock and surprise to the way things could break down. So our, but on another level, these things aren't surprises, right? Because there's warning signs that have been building up all along and underinvestment in our capacities. And so this fits into this basic Uh, thing that comes out in the theories and findings and key concepts in resilience engineering, that you just the pursuit of optimality by itself on some criteria will inevitably end up undermining the sources of resilience. Uh, This pursuit of optimality is a form of pressure that distorts uh, uh, and degrades some of the key things we rely on. So let's take another quote from yesterday about the pandemic and a doctor in New York in the New York Times comes back and says, uh, right, we uh, as a healthcare frontline worker who's at personal risk and his family at risk by treating patients, we shouldn't have had to pay for short sighted government policies that eviscerated our public health infrastructure. Uh, and of course, uh, social order relies on reciprocity, imposing outside burdens on one group without sacrifice from others is unfair. Doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers may be heroes in this pandemic, but we will not be martyrs." Uh, what's going on here is the idea that there are some people in responsible roles who will step up and become that uh, source of resilience when surprise hits that the doctors and health cares, but also the delivery workers and cleaners and things become a front line. Uh, they will, most of them will step up to do something. And that source of resilience is ad hoc. It is um, not accounted for. It's often not supported directly as in the example of degrading uh, the CDC and its capabilities to roll out testing and other kinds of things. So instead, of, it's not that we have to not be in search of optimal under uh, the typical conditions, but rather these two properties go on in parallel. And that's one of the surprises that's hard for people to deal with. They think of it as we have a, a business process uh, that is set up to work as optimally as we can make it and continually improve it to do better. Oh, and yeah, yeah, we have some contingency plans, right? Because those things don't happen very often. Right. And then it turns out that surprise isn't about frequency. Surprise is about models, right? How we usually do things, how our plans work, our planful response and how that's embodied in automation and processes and procedures and normal workflows. Um, And it turns out that surprise is going on all the time. Um, and, uh, it's better to think of these as, uh, we want to think of our system as pristine and well-organized, uh, and then, uh, and then occasionally we get a disrupting event. And of course it's very easy because we focused on how great our system is normally and how much we've improved o- over recent past, uh, that if, uh, uh, a degradation comes through, a poor performance happens, an untoward event occurs, we tend to think of it as people didn't work to plan, they didn't work to roll, they didn't work to rule. Uh, And if they could just do that, things would have been fine. And so we ratchet up the pressure. And what that does is it further undermines the kinds of adaptations and activities that go on in order to compensate for the usual problems, gaps that have to be bridged in activity, that small surprises are happening all the time. Plans can't be perfect, right? There are always going to be gaps in them. So it turns out we need two forms of capability that we build up and uh, have in parallel. The capability to adapt when the envelope, our, the limits of our planful activities are challenged by surprise events, as well as the ability to improve and um, Become more optimal, uh, even with some robustness criterion on well understood disturbances uh, in our far from the boundary operations. Now, this particular event throws out many of the relevant, uh, uh, relevant uh, findings.
1: Let me interrupt to ask you a question just because I'm curious. You, you see those as parallel, the, the pressure for efficiency and the pressure for capacity as parallel paths, not as opposing paths.
0: Um, so the, the pressure to be more optimal and increase productivity right, interacts with the sources of resilience. And okay. the reason that happens is because um, uh, the things that create the conditions for resilient performance, and we're going to illustrate those in a minute, are, um, uh, are kind of a potential. We talk about it as being poised to adapt when conditions change, when new challenges occur. And to be poised to adapt is a kind of potential, right? I don't need it all the time. I need it, right, in the face of these different kinds of challenge events. Uh, But I need it in advance of the challenge event. If I have to construct it during the challenge event, it doesn't go very well. The risk of performing poorly or too slowly uh, is too high. In other words, the systems are brittle, right? That's the fundamental thing this all leads up to is what makes systems um, uh, uh, fail on to perform to what we'd like, right, is really the risk is the brittleness risk. And brittleness is, descriptively, how things fall off at the boundaries, right? There's always limits. Uh, there's always finite resources. There's always change going on. So whatever you put together, there's a limit. There's an envelope over which it works. It's a, It has competence, and it's... Your model, your plans have a competence, and it has limits, though. And so how does it behave at the boundary? If it fails quickly, right, deteriorates quickly at the boundaries, that's brittleness. That kind of a signature is also called decompensation. In other words, whatever was going on that's the challenge would get compensated for. There would be adaptations and actions to try to deal with it but you exhaust that capacity to keep pace with the increasing challenges. And then you get a sudden collapse. Now, uh, brittleness and decompensation are evident all through the rolling series of outbreaks. Um, Now one aspect that this is a rolling series of outbreaks is that we get an opportunity to learn from others. If we're not the first one, if we're not Wuhan in China, if we're not Seattle in the U.S., we can learn from others about what happened, what to do, what kinds of challenges and how to prepare. So anticipation allows us to build up our readiness to respond in advance so that we can continue, so we can keep pace with the challenges that we may confront. Will we get a big surge? Will we get an overwhelming surge of seriously ill COVID-19 patients, right? When and where and how that will play out for different jurisdictions and hospital systems is uncertain. But we have evidence within this about that it can get overwhelmed. So we build the readiness to respond in advance by anticipating. So two of the key properties are this anticipation ability uh, and the Uh, building up uh, the readiness to respond in advance. And this is uh, all over the place. So first off, what do we see in this particular surge of uh, challenges to hospitals is that clinicians themselves are the primary source of resilient performance. They are going to adapt to try to get things done, as in the quote I read earlier, even at risk to themselves. What makes this one different and is interesting is the scale of challenge events go up is this requires other parts of the organization to join the clinicians, to join the people who are normally the key sources of resilience uh, to help steer through the obstacles. So we've talked about this particular challenge of the pandemic as steering through fog under pressure. And even worse, it's steering multiple cars through the fog uh, with right limits on the ability to synchronize the different vehicles to not run into each other, much less run into the obstacles to get through to success on the other side of taking care of the seriously ill patients, reducing transmission so we can stop the flow of seriously ill patients. Um, what's quick at the clinician at the frontline level is that's the place where they recognize what's new. Now to some degree it's a respiratory disease. It has similarities to many other ones. We have a variety of repertoire. We're not inventing a new repertoire on the of action against respiratory disease on the spot, but we are repurposing, repackaging, recombining the techniques that we have. And so when you talk to the frontline physicians and in the intensive care, they're, uh, They're open to adjust what they do. They're looking and hungry for information about how this may develop. Uh, They are, um, as one person said to me, who was ready to go into the ICU as their region started to confront patients. It will be very interesting to see how well we adapt and how we can basically digest information, analyze it and get it to the bedside. So they're recognizing that something new is going on and they have to be prepared, poised to adapt. And how they get ready may have to change as the uh, pandemic and the outbreak, they experience changes. Now, uh, what's interesting when they experience load, what you see very quickly here is actually we really are pretty optimal. We're very optimally poised as systems. Uh, because of economic issues and other kinds of things. And you see that in the healthcare example here, because there's three kinds of pressure operating on hospitals right now. Uh, One is that you have the the new disease uh, and the way to deal with that and the risk of the surge overwhelming your capacity to care for the patients. Uh, But two is, uh, even with reprioritization and other steps, there's still... Healthcare events that non-COVID-19 patients have that need to be taken care of. People still have heart attacks. Uh, Luckily, with reduced driving, there's less car accidents and things, but people still need care for various reasons. So you have to accommodate those other patients. And the nature of the constraints of COVID-19 is the transmissibility and the patients, the other non-COVID patients are probably in a vulnerable state, so you really don't want to infect them. Um, And so you need to keep two separate lines of uh, care going and set them up, which means you're reconfiguring, not just in the ICU, you're reconfiguring everything about the hospital system, the intake of patients, right? How you evaluate them, uh, et cetera. And you have to reconfigure this all around what? Everybody's doing the same thing as the sequence builds. So shortages Resources that you normally count on or assume are easy to recruit turn out to have, be very difficult to recruit, right? and you end up with shortages. So you act to conserve protective gear. You start you start changing what's the standard of care. You start increasing the risk to healthcare workers. So you start having you know our our, our uh, hospitalized patients around the world start raging. From eight to fourteen percent of them are healthcare workers. So now you've not only added your burden as a healthcare system, you've also lost capacity to treat, or you don't want uh, you you have inadequate testing. Uh, who's been exposed as a healthcare worker, and can they continue to work, and in what role? And you start seeing changes in the rules for what constitutes exposure that requires moving that worker out of frontline healthcare delivery. But if you move, if you're too uh, sensitive to possible exposures, you quickly start running out of healthcare workers and some of the systems that haven't even been slammed with a high patient load, right, have had to shift their criteria in order to keep enough staff. Where do you recruit staff? How do you get them ready to, how do you support them? Well, you reconfigure how you deploy expertise, who are the key experts in handling the disease and monitoring the patients? One of the reasons this one is particularly difficult is because it involves a lot of slow processes, long time delay processes. right? It's 14 days that people may be uh, infectious to others yet not have enough symptoms to know it that they're sick. So 14 days, you know, the peak is actually sooner, but 14 days to cover the distribution. If you end up in the hospital, your course of treatment is probably around 20 days. So these things take time. You have the transmission process, which takes time. And how is that slowed down by different kinds of interventions at a societal level? Or we see it sped up, uh, tied to particular large gatherings that bring a lot of people from different places together. Uh, Mardi Gras in New Orleans, spring break on Florida beaches all of a sudden we've expanded the transmission vectors that move and, and uh, uh, move the uh, virus around and open up a, a larger set of people to possibly need hospitalization. So, uh, so you have three sources, right? COVID-19 patients, non-COVID-19 patients, and the fact that the healthcare system has to reconfigure how it does everything. Three sources of pressure, three new ways of doing things. And I think these are examples of um, way of things in any organization. There's new things they have to do because of COVID, right? There's normal things they need to do because people still need normal things and can carry on uh, on a variety of vital services. Uh, And because of the interactions and interdependencies of all these things and the fact that everybody else is changing and therefore shortages start to appear in one place or another, everybody's reconfiguring how they work. And so you have the maximum kind of challenge spreading across everybody at once. Um, another point is how uh, uh, we tend to think of these things as being, you know, about the vertical organization. And what does the top of the organization do and what signals do they send down? Well, right, we actually reconfigure in these situations into what the Nobel Prize winning Uh, uh, researcher uh, Eleanor Ostrom called polycentric governance. We see multiple jurisdictions interacting. We see partial authority on autonomy. We see people closer to the front lines who play critical roles in recognizing what's going on and accommodating and meeting the service challenges. Uh, How are the upper echelons supposed to respond? Are they supposed to solicit information, let it percolate up, Engage in replanning and redirecting the different parts of the organization. uh, Well, that kind of vertical flow and replanning coming down is too slow. Even if you do it all right, by the time it hits the front lines, it will be stale because things keep changing. Uh, We learn more. We get more information. uh, The nature of the situation keeps changing. Uh, So we have to have something that's much more responsive. And to be highly responsive, we have to coordinate across all these different levels and roles, not just within your organization, but with other organizations and authorities and jurisdictions to see what's happening and how to how to adapt and modify what's going on. What we've seen, um, one common thing that we see is uh, kind of um, near the front lines, but people with enough view they see how what happens at the front lines interacts with other key functions and activities uh, turn out to be critical because uh, what they start to do is they start to take their horizontal lines of communication. They create them. They build on them. They use, they use normal things that aren't part of the usual business flow uh, to find out what's going on and to connect with others. What are you seeing? How are you handling this? What problems have arisen? How have you worked around them? In the uh, healthcare care system, uh, critical care physicians started to activate their personal network from people they were residents with or fellows with. Uh, they, the professional societies start to try to gather information together. The Society of Critical Care Medicine, for example, or emergency physicians. And they, uh, they start to share information and the frontline physicians leading the battle, so the kind of first or second level managers in touch with what's going on in many organizations, um, uh, they recognize that the the personal connections give them the freshest, most up-to-date information, but it requires cross-checking and cooperation, or it could just be something that's locally relevant and not something that connects across everybody. So what do they do? Uh, they, you know, they get the fresh stuff and they see and they get the stuff to check it It comes from the professional societies and now they get some cooperation, but they've been poised to adapt. They've been alerted early. They're ready to anticipate and modify as the information comes in the, um, uh, and we've seen this in other situations in the uh, uh, in the Iraq War and the uh, shifting from uh, normal force on force combat to a counterinsurgency. The same kind of horizontal lines of communication grew up in response at sort of the captain's war to figure out what was going on in the insurgency and what was effective to counter it. And it took upper management a long time to catch up with the adaptations and innovations that were happening. So what was the role of upper management? Uh, To recognize where there were shortages of resources that were hobbling things. To change the value system to value responsiveness, right? And to be willing to sacrifice following usual procedures and practices uh, because they would be too slow. Uh, They had to... Uh, do the direction and changing the uh, way that um, people would make trade off decisions in advance of a crunch. If you waited till people were in a crunch and then asked for permission and check on things, it would be too slow and stale. Um, they needed to be kept up to speed, but the problem of getting information overloaded many of the critical roles that were managing. Uh, uh, the situation and trying to learn and adapt to keep pace with the change in the world. So you have to have some mechanisms so you don't overload by seeking information. Uh, And yet you can't wait for information just to percolate. So you have to set up some different kinds of uh, information sharing mechanisms than normal. The, uh, uh, The horizontal communication is important as actions need to be taken because even though we need to be highly responsive it's easy to take an action that makes sense from a local perspective but misses other constraints if it considered a full range of issues and so you make the classic mistake we see in many many accidents so people did the right thing in a narrow sense but it was the missing the side effects of actions and changes right that ended up Really, creating the the largest source of the trouble that, and bad consequences that ensued. So, how do you avoid? Uh, how do you make sure you don't miss side effects? Well, we set up, set up, but still be very responsive. So, you set up mechanisms for horizontal decision sharing, so that people can be in. Um, sometimes these are ad hoc kinds of control centers that are put together where all the different critical functions are closely tied together. So, when one side, side says uh, we're modifying because this has come up and we need to make a change for this reason. Other parties can immediately go, well, I understand you need to do that, but that screws my scope of responsibility or increases risks. On um, Maybe there's a different way you could meet your issue that would also assist me or at least not hurt me in the areas I'm trying to control. Uh, and so you need to get that balance. It's still – it's been highly responsive, but it needs still be thorough, but in new ways because you're under time pressure. Um, and so that rebalancing of a speed-thoroughness trade-off is something that we see often in these situations. Um, uh, so we see, um, in this particular case, it's an extreme one. And so we end up seeing... Many, many different layers uh, interacting and have to coordinate in new ways. Most of the time in the kinds of surprise events, we only see a portion of this. Um, I think one of the trends here, this is as large scale as we can get. Um, But over the last 10 years, the studies, the results, the uh, driving issues are all come from scaling up. As the world scales up, there's new interdependencies. As we get more efficient, there's new kinds of interdependencies. Uh, The risk of getting brittle in the face of challenge events goes up. Uh, The pursuit of optimality often undermines some of the sources of resilience. Um, we, uh, We have some areas where we do pay attention to some of the safety and other kinds of brittleness issues, and we think we've got them under control. We've got signs that it works well. But then the next challenge is different than what we expected. Um, And so um, this case illustrates the general problem of how to deal with the scaling up. And we've talked about some of the different ways that scaling up brings unexpected interactions that undermine our usual ways of working, oversubscribes uh, resources that we depend on, uh, given our contingency plans for events that occur. So these are some of the kinds of things that go on when we have a, um, a a situation like this that simultaneously challenges many many of the the different ways that we normally carry out our functions in society. How we rely on the healthcare system, how the healthcare system actually operates very close to the edge in terms of efficiency to, uh, on a financial balancing the different constraints financially. Uh, and healthcare delivery and revenue uh, insurance-wise. And that finally ba- fine balance can get upset. In this case, it's upset by a rather large shock event.
1: But we're really counting on – I mean, leaders really have to count on changing the way they – so anticipation, really uh, adaption and learning all come from creating new channels in the midst of this crisis – to gather data from really the workforce, right? So they're they're having a they're having a, they're having a status jump. They're having to go to different places to get data to make management decisions. Is that fair?
0: Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you hit on you know one of the things from the beginning as we started resilience engineer almost 20 years ago is um, we talk about these key uh, capabilities of uh, these key verbs, right? Emphasize these are verbs. Your capabilities to do something, uh, and anticipation. Uh, and a red, building a readiness to respond in advance of the crunch uh, that, that can arise. Um, uh, supporting the anticipation is, is important, otherwise you risk uh, this decompensation. So, decompensation is the downside, anticipation is the upside. Um, uh, we need to, uh, to do this, uh, we need to coordinate and synchronize activities in new ways. Right? we have to be able to reconfigure and support each other, and so we see a um, uh, a second kind of problem arise where we work at cross purposes, and what's locally rational and adapt- adaptive for one perspective or one unit at one scale, all right, doesn't work very well. It's globally maladaptive, right, and undermines the larger uh, the pursuit of the larger goals when considered more broadly. Um, uh, so if we can synchronize and coordinate, we can amplify our ability to respond, right? If we work at cross purposes, we fragment and undermine our ability to keep pace with events. The third one is the, uh, we get stuck in stale approaches. So these were things that were once working. They were logical and valuable at one point in time, but they no longer apply to this situation. And our ability to engage in proactive learning to learn ahead of when we not learn because we got slammed and we had to uh, modify things under direct pressure, but rather to learn in advance and all of um, if we can do proactive learning rather than get stuck in stale approaches. But that requires us to be open to the information, to attend, right, right? right? Learn ahead of the curve. Now we're back to anticipation. Otherwise, we'll decompensate, right? We will Performance will fall off rapidly when we meet the edge of the performance envelope that is uh, available to everyone.
1: But the traditional Notice- metrics, the traditional performance operational metrics, the, the traditional data streams really – are a victim of that stale approach, right? So when faced with the opportunity to become resilient, the traditional metrics you use to determine your performance no longer function to actually help you determine your resilience.
0: Now, remember, the, the key thing here is everybody's part of a, a dynamic system now. Everybody's a kind of operator. It's just the different scales that has to coordinate across those levels to have the necessary impact. Um, You have to work at tempo, right? And a lot of the layers of the organization aren't used to working at tempo, right? Driven by the world, uh, by the changing events, sensitive. So keeping pace with events, keeping pace with change is essential. So uh, for a lot of the organizations to do this when we see successes is they are – They have the experience of needing to adapt. So they get used to operating at tempo, at having to keep pace, at having to adapt plans. They become skillful in adapting plans to meet contingencies and circumstances. They don't see it as force everybody to always work the plan, that the plan is always right. right? that plan or a resource, right? And the question is, what is most effective in the world? So what do we tell people... To do. We tell them there's a couple things you got to build. One is you can't have enough adaptive capacity unless you build initiative. If people can't take the initiative, so why did I talk about resilience at the front lines and the physicians? They have to be able to take the initiative in order to develop, to be open to learn, to anticipate, to build the response capability for the particular challenges. Um, uh, and so the organization has to govern the expression of initiative because it doesn't mean freewheeling that everybody can just figure out whatever seems best to them at that moment Because then the response would be highly fragmented and not coordinated. Right? So governing the expression of initiative, but if initiative is, if you drive it out by just work to plan, you can't have sufficient adaptive capacity. You can't gracefully extend performance, at the boundaries of your normal work in order to handle the conditions that and challenges that arise from a surprise event. Um, the second one that is critical is reciprocity. And if you notice, that was in the uh, doctor's plea, you know, of we order relies on reciprocity. Um, and it turns out from a variety of lines of work, they all keep converging on something related to this word reciprocity. Um, Now, some people think of that as altruism, uh, and we get into some social science issues, uh, but the work in resilience engineering, particularly if you look at my own work uh, around the discovery of graceful extensibility, uh, what we we realize is that uh, reciprocity is a very specific and actionable kind of meaning. And what it means is, is that each role is sensitive to other roles they're interdependent with, that, you know, that success comes from combining how they work together, not just each doing their own thing by themselves. And I monitor you to see if you're struggling, if you're running into trouble, keeping control for your scope of responsibility. And if I see you saturating, the risk of saturating, running out of the capability to continue to perform in the face of the difficulties you face i need to do something that extends your performance it reduces the pressure on you or extends your ability to handle things right so i need to increase your capacity to maneuver in these situations uh and if i lose reciprocity what happens is my actions i retreat into my role And now what happens is coordination breaks down, fragmentation grows, right? As you run the risk of saturating, I'm not helping or worse. I can actually act in ways that constrict your ability uh, to meet the challenges that you face. And in complex systems and highly interdependent networked activities, that's a recipe for big trouble. You have to invest in building reciprocity. So, like setting up mechanisms that govern the expression of initiative, and how, where and how much you need it when, uh, but having a base of initiative to build on, uh, an investment in building reciprocity, a value where I will help you if you're struggling, right? Those require organizational investments well in advance of experiencing challenge events, whether those are extreme weather events, infectious diseases, political upheavals, uh technology revolutions whatever it is that's played out and all of those have happened right within our uh within our uh, professional lifetimes um you know we can t- talk about culture but these things now become actionable meaningful things that you you have to build up uh, and we have very strong evidence that you know goes down and people want hard stuff. We can do this in certain areas with nonlinear math. Uh, now there'll be kind of odd examples when we can do the nonlinear math. But if you want one, I can show you that. Or we can do it with uh, automation. Uh, and people say, oh okay, let's make this really tangible. Okay, I've got I've got control equations for this for examples of this for airplanes under certain upset conditions. Now that those equations won't work at every level. Uh, But at that level I can turn it into equations and we've got those out and those would lead to better ways to organize a System that has multiple uh, pieces of automation interacting with multiple human roles And again the 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 fundamental idea development and principles and the basis for those are allowing us to take on new kinds of actions So this isn't uh, this isn't the opinion or some vague social science results Right, This is fundamentals about how adaptive systems and complex worlds work. And this applies throughout the biological realm. And we're in the biological realm. Right. Uh, uh, human systems are part of it. Now, are human systems the driver for, you know, to explain everything in biology or are we a subset of the biological world? That's a different debate. <laughs> the biological world has rules. Those rules are not what we think they are and there is no way to escape those rules, right? And we see this uh, in these conditions. Now, one of the questions people are probably thinking right now is, well, this this is all great for a major challenge event like a pandemic or some other tremendous disrupting event that uh, might happen at slightly smaller scales, Uh, but this doesn't apply usually. Uh, I can, this is only a special case. And that's one of the fundamental things we keep coming back and trying to get people that this, this, uh, that your organization is always handling some kind of surprise. They go on in parallel, yes, in different tempos, perhaps at a particular stage. Um, uh, and the reason it's hard to see is called the law of fluency. And the law of fluency says, well, adapted, adapted activity, hides the difficulties handled and the dilemmas resolved. So it doesn't mean there's no dilemmas. It doesn't mean there's no extra difficulties. Um, It means the well-adapted activity by the people who provide the sources of resilience hide the value of those sources of resilience, hide the, the times when it was needed and drawn on. So our fundamental thing is to understand how work really happens, which is uncover the normal run of surprises, small they may be, in many many facets of your work. Uh, uh, look at the world not that not through rose-colored, planned-based glasses, but look at them with the assumption that surprise, that the, your systems are messy, that there are holes and gaps. And that is necessary for some people some of the time to direct a variety of resources to bridge those gaps, fill those gaps in order to meet the normal functions of your organization and provide the valued services that are fundamental to your organization.
1: So brilliant. So after 40 years studying this and in the midst of a giant pandemic, what are you finding most interesting?
0: Well, it's a, it's a little bit surreal because here we are. You know, the, thing, the things I study, I'm, I'm in the middle of, as a stakeholder and a small actor, in the middle of something that uh, we understand a fair amount about. Uh, the ability to connect to uh, key decision makers uh, is difficult. The, um, uh, I feel a little frustrated on the timing, which is I think there's a bunch of things. Because we can explain a lot. Uh, But that only helps if we get it to the right people at the right time, which, of course, is one of our major findings. It's about timing, it's a dynamic process. Um, I find it, um, uh, uh, I I think it's a challenge to us uh, in this case and afterwards um, that our explanations, however great they are and however deep. I can make these scientifically that this is really the rules by which things work. Um, that it's hard to, you know, we have to make sure we can translate those into effective forms of action. Um, in the end, we're putting out a variety of appeals. Um, we've used some sports metaphors. Um, if, if you look at my COVID diary, um, but, um, One is basketball, since this would normally be basketball season, the peak of it. Uh, And it's just simply team defense is all about the help. Help, right? It's all about how we help each other, right, pull together, how we build solidarity so that all these different groups and actions move in the same direction because the economic impact will be less the faster that we can break transmission chains. Right, the fast, the better we can build hospital capability to care for the seriously ill successfully, the sooner we can move into uh, uh, more normal activities. One of the lessons of history is that these kinds, when we really do have the really big challenge event and we call these fundamental surprises, whether it was Three Mile Island or Challenger, uh, whether it's uh, this pandemic. All of these uh, provide an opportunity for fundamental learning and change in the organization or systems, or in this case, societies uh, that have uh, had to uh, struggle with the challenge and come out on the other end. And a lot of the question is, are the societies and organizations able to use these as opportunities to learn and reconfigure how they do things and be progressive in moving forward uh, in a way that allows them to function better on a variety of fronts. Uh, versus the ones that retreat uh, into old ways of doing things, retreat into old myths about what's the best way to do things. Uh, we see retreat in the form of selfish behavior, uh, uh, which undermines the ca- capability of any of these large uh, network systems and complex worlds. Uh, to function adequately, and we see selfish exploitation for other purposes. Uh, hence why I started off with that doctor's comment. If right. we you know, don't pull together, right, the consequences of challenge events like this turn out to be much worse. I think ultimately for safety people and, and for business people who uh, often think uh, that safety is uh, already solved, um, uh, we run into the business case for safety, uh, kinds of issues and things. Um, the value of the things we talk about in system safety for complex worlds, uh, we normally can't get all the evidence because if we're successful, nothing happens. Um, we can't afford lots of airplanes to crash. We can't count frequencies. Right? Part of the shock of, of two Boeing 737 MAX accidents is two happened in short sequence with exactly the same mechanism. That's not supposed to happen in aviation. We're not supposed to have two of them. Uh, the, um, uh, in this case, uh, we actually do have a measure. It's uh, terrible, which is going to be excessive deaths. And the people who anticipate, build a readiness to respond, uh, build solidarity and get everyone pulling together in the same direction will have a much lower excessive death toll at the end of this. After the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, uh, people could go back, even with the technology and data collection of the time, and calculate excessive deaths. So excessive deaths are really just a ratio or a regression between who did the best uh, uh, and who did less than the best. And what you find, example, on the anticipation, those who acted early, even though the evidence wasn't definitive yet, that they had to take on these very disruptive actions and changes had the lowest death tolls. People who reacted later had a much higher one. Uh, You see this right now in places that were slammed early, Wuhan, Italy, Spain, Seattle early on, New York now, uh, versus ones that uh, acted early, cut the transmission, and built a a medical response capability. Germany right now, um, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, Singapore, Each of those uh, other parts of China, each of those have slightly different stories and versions of how the the techniques came together to break the transmission and not overload. Uh, But my calculations right now, highly uncertain of what those excessive death tolls might range over, uh, suggests that we could see a range of uh, extra deaths four times higher for places that handle it poorly, seven to eight times higher. Spain greater than that. Uh, Italy's running over ten times higher than the best places right now. Now, the data that feeds all that is going to change. Um, there are issues about: Are there more deaths that are not being revealed at this stage? Uh, are there? What about the deaths from people who don't get the adequate care because all of the healthcare resources are going to deal with the surge of COVID patients in certain areas? Um, so we may overestimate the death toll to some degree. We may underestimate the death toll in some areas and jurisdictions at certain times. So how this all goes together um, um, uh, is um, highly uncertain. But I think it is reasonable at this stage, despite the uncertainties, to suggest that when it's all over, that's how big a difference we could make if we take action successfully together. So I think in the end, this will be a case that we can go back to and and lay out why many of the things that apply here that apply. And we've seen all these other places, right, uh, matter. Uh, And we'll have a we'll have a dimension and it will be a sad one.
1: I just talked to a friend of mine who kind of let me in on a big discussion in Palo Alto with the venture capital people, the, the technology people. And one of the comments they made which is I'm relatively certain why my friend called me was that we've been in a traditional business environment that was aligned towards efficiency. They predict we're going to move to a business environment that's going to be rel- aligned towards resilience. What do you think about that?
0: Um well I think that um I think from a society level uh cutting through many different industries and sectors that the obsession with um, a, na- a narrow definition of optimality has undermined, uh, made the systems all way too brittle. Yeah. And uh, we've been seeing signs of that, the growth and emergence of resilience engineering was about that. All of the things that we drew on 20 years ago to start this and move it forward um, were from uh, smaller fields and uh, industry uh, sectors where complexity had already reared its head and was unavoidable to deal with. But the pursuit of optimality inevitably increases complexity. And so you have to inevitably build the, the mechanisms to outmaneuver that complexity. To do that, you have to understand the rules of the adaptive universe, the way it works. It's not the way you think it works. Uh, Yes, optimality is part of the way organizations need to work, but they have to balance that with this uh, new property that we now come to understand is fundamental at all levels called graceful extensibility, uh, that you have to value, uh, you have to build up a capability to in parallel value optimality and create the potential to demonstrate graceful extensibility when events challenge your boundaries of normal function. Uh, That's called net adaptive value. This has a long history in biology. Net adaptive value, biological systems have to do both. Let me give you a simple example. The brain, right? The brain has to do both, right? Hey, if I experience the same thing over and over again or regular occurring variations, I want to learn what those are and hone my behavior to relative to the opportunities and to the risks. I Reduce the risk. I maximize the opportunities. I'm a successful organism or species, right? I'm a successful brain, Uh, but that's not sufficient because the world changes Um, and there's finite resources and getting good at one thing inevitably undermines your ability to do other things. So you have to learn when to switch, when to change. And you do that by being sensitive to what's anomalous or non-typical. And so the brain is simultaneously super sensitive at a certain scale to anything that doesn't fit what's typical. So it builds up a typical. It keeps getting better at responding to the typical. It's sensitive and goes, hey, that's not typical. What is that? What's going on? What should I do different so that it can adapt in an appropriately responsive way to that opportunity or to that threat. It requires both. That's net adaptive value. So the ultimate discovery here is that you have to balance your pursuit of optimality because there's a hard constraint on all systems in this universe and this biological universe and that is viability in the long run requires extensibility. I have to be able to gracefully extend the normal ways I work to handle the inevitable challenges and surprises that will arise. And the big the biggest surprise about that relationship is the biggest driver of surprise is our success. The more optimal we get, the more we make things work better, the more we trigger adaptations by other related parties who see our success as something to be taken advantage of in one way or another. Scale goes up, interdependencies go up, complexity grows, and the need to balance uh, our pursuit of optimality with um, supporting the ability to demonstrate, to be poised to adapt or demonstrate this graceful extensibility at the boundaries, those two have to be built up and valued in parallel. So, net adaptive value becomes the key measure of an organization's capability. Right. Graceful extensibility isn't simply passive buffers and extra stuff. It's a it's a verb. It's a dynamic capability. Right. Remember the line from the uh, 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 the intensivist going in to handle COVID-19 patients. It will be very interesting to see how well we adapt and basically how well we can digest new information, analyze it and get it to the bedside. Right. That capability. Right is illustrating what graceful extensibility is about. So that constraint, viability requires extensibility, has to be added to the legitimate pursuit of optimality. You put those together, the organizations that can combine those and adjust those dynamically will be the successful ones in the post-pandemic world.
1: So tell me that wasn't worth an extra dog walk or a couple trips around the block to finish up. I told you. That whole idea of graceful extensibility and brittleness and fragility and resilience, those things have never had more resonance than they probably do right now. And the opportunity for change is wide open and available. That is the podcast. Special thanks to David Woods. I can't tell you enough, and he's available. And if you want to talk to him, he's the kind of guy you can talk to. It's no problem at all. Uh, I'll again, again, Put some references in the uh, information at the bottom of the podcast if you want it. It's, it's right there for you. Until then, thanks for listening. Tell your friends. I'm glad you're on board. Um, play this for other people. This one's a good one. It's a really good one. Until then, learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. And for goodness sakes, be safe.